The scripture reading for this morning is Ephesians 5:15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of God to us. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, good morning. Thanks so much for being here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors. Uh, really, really glad that you made it. If, you, uh, if you've been out of church for a while, uh, and may, maybe you've never been in church at all, and this is your first time or first time back after a while, I want to say thank you for being here. I know that there are times where even walking through the doors of a church can be really intimidating, uh, especially if you're not sure what you believe or you're sure that you don't. And if that's you, we just want to say this is a place where you can wrestle with the claims of Jesus, and we want to help you wrestle with those as well. So really, really glad that you made it this morning. Um, hey, have you ever heard uh, really bad preaching before? Yeah? Some of you are nodding your head too rapidly, which is scary because you're regulars. Uh, You're like, yeah, I'm about to, so thanks. Uh, There was a guy in the 1700s who was very, very brilliant, but really boring. He was a preacher, and he had a very nasally voice that was difficult to even listen to. Do you know how there are some of those voices that just kind of grate on you a little bit? He had a a voice that was even difficult to listen to, uh, nasally, and very, very monotone. He struggled with his eyes, so he had really bad eyesight. So I kid you not, what he would do is he would hold a sermon manuscript like this, a few inches from his nose, and he would read word for word his entire sermon, kind of focused, if he ever looked up, on the back wall. And he was known for this. He was known for not being a spectacular preacher. He wouldn't like emphasize certain things or you know, inf- you know, have any sort of inflection or what, whatever. And in fact, it's so funny, in some of his sermons, this is more than on one occasion, in some of his sermons, he actually begins his sermon by saying, hey, if you would please not sleep during my sermon, that would be really great. Like, can you imagine if it's at Frontline and it's like, well, good morning, thanks for being here at Frontline, and we're about to jump in, I just have one quick announcement, please don't sleep while I preach to you the Word of God. Thank you very much. That's it, now we're going to jump into the Word of God. He does this on various occasions, and yet something happened. In the 1730s and in the 1740s, revival began to break out in his church and around the northeast part of the country and eventually all over the UK and various parts of the world. It was called the Great Awakening. And this preacher, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, you may have heard of him, he went on to describe the event like this. He says, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, 
and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. There's stories of this event where people literally crawl under their pews, crawl under their seats out of just the weight of conviction from the Holy Spirit and be crying out to God weeping. This was powerful. About 150 years later, a little more than 150 years later, in 1904, there was a young 26-year-old Welsh preacher, a guy by the name of Evan Roberts. And Evan began to experience personal renewal. And what I mean by that is he had just a sense of the presence of God in a way that you can't shake. It felt real. And it, it started to bring conviction of sin. And he started to be hungry for more of God. He started to long for God. And he felt like, man, if I could just have my whole life be wrapped up in God, that's what I want. And it was so contagious that about two weeks later, this began to happen, not just in his own heart, but revival began to break out. Revival, by the way, is when renewal, this personal thing that happens, when renewal goes viral. That's revival. And that's what began to happen is just across his church and then eventually other churches and then all over Wales, there were some 30,000 people converted once it was all said and done. 30,000 people. And a local newspaper uh, commented on the whole phenomenon, said this, the scene was almost indescribable. Tear upon tear of men and women filled every inch of the space of the sanctuary. Those who could not gain admittance stood outside and listened at the doors. Others rushed to the windows where almost every word was audible. When at seven o'clock the service began, quite 2,000 people must have been present. And this is a small town. The enthusiasm was unbounded. Women sang and shouted till the perspiration ran down their faces. And men jumped up after the other to testify. One told in quivering accents the story of a drunken life. A working collier spoke like a practice orator. And one can imagine what a note the testimony of of a converted gypsy woman struck when dressed in her best, she told of her reformation and repentance. At 10 o'clock, the meeting had lost none of its ardor. Prayer after prayer went up from those Welsh hearts with almost dreary persistence. Three hours later. Time and again, the four ministers who stood in the pulpit attempted to start a hymn, but it was all in vain. I love that. The revival had taken hold of the people, and even Mr. Roberts cannot hold it in check. His latest convert is a policeman who, after complaining that the people had gone mad after religion, said that there was nothing to do, went to see for himself, and bursting into tears, confessed the error of his ways and repented. These stories are incredible and you can think about the last 2,000 years of the church and think about moments in the life of the church where these revivals have hit. You can think about Pentecost in Acts 2, the Hebrides revival in Scotland. You can think about the ministry of Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century as he pastored in London. You can think about the Azusa Street revival in 1906, the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s when a bunch of hippies who had rebelled against their parents and got a hold of the sexual revolution, like were getting saved by literally hundreds of people a day coming to know Jesus left and right. And you just wonder like, what happens for something like that to happen? How does that take place? What has to occur for a group of people to experience renewal and then for it to break out into revival for God to move in this way. And here's what's really interesting. 
As you look at the church, you can see times of health and growth and vitality, followed by times of dysfunction and decline and sleepiness. And for whatever reason, almost every time that the church as a whole falls into a place of decline, unhealth, and sleepiness, that's when God decides to move in power. So if you feel discouraged about the nature of the church, and by all the data out there, you should feel discouraged about the nature of the church in America, this is a perfect opportunity for the power of God to move. And here's what it is. Here's what causes these things. It has nothing to do with the strategies or the plans or the brilliant preachers or whatever. That's why I share these stories with you up front because it's not about the good preaching or the strategies or the plans. It is about one thing. It's about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. He is the one that brings about renewal and revival and he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. So if you're just joining us, here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the need for renewal in our lives, how whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're not, the reality is what you need more than anything else is not more money. It's not for relationship hacks. It's not for life hacks or some new app that's going to fix you. What you need more than anything else is for an encounter with the presence of God. You need more of God. And specifically what we're talking about today is how renewal comes about through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know, let me just kind of very plainly say it to you. Um, Our desire as a church, one of our our deepest desires as a church, is to be a Spirit-filled church. We want to be a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I would imagine in a culture like ours, whether you're in church or not on a regular basis, that needs some unpacking, doesn't it? Because what kind of gets exposed out there for Holy Spirit stuff or Spirit-filled life and ministry can often be very bizarre. So I want to just show you this picture. When we say Spirit-filled, we're not talking about this. You may not recognize this. This is a a guy by the name of Kenneth Copeland. He's a televangelist. He's standing in front of a private jet that people in his church funded for him, multiple millions of dollars. And so maybe when you hear spirit-filled, you think of something like this on TV. Oh yeah, these are the crazy people that are only in it for the money. They wear golden cufflinks and they take up 37 offerings every Sunday. And you know, they're, it's, this is what it is. No, that's not what we mean by spirit-filled. Maybe you picture this. This is uh, Benny Hinn. And if you're wondering what he's doing, he's hitting somebody with his jacket, that's what he's doing. And, and by the way, if you've never seen uh, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor by Benny Hinn on YouTube, do you know what I'm talking about? If you have never seen that, that I, just, I just gave you a gift for your afternoon. You're welcome. And so when you think of Spirit-Filled, maybe that's what comes to mind. It's freaky, crazy, people falling all over the place, convulsing, foaming at the mouth, shouting out in tongues all together. And you just think, like, if that's the Holy Spirit, he's the weird uncle. I definitely don't want to go to the family reunion when he is around. I'd rather pass. I want to just say, uh, that is not what we mean when we say Spirit-Filled. Here's what we mean when we say Spirit-Filled. Jesus... Uh, left heaven and came to the earth, and though he was God, he made a decision to humbly live fully out of his humanity, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when we say spirit-filled, we're saying living like Jesus. It's being able to do the things that Jesus did, uh, the healings, the raising of the dead, the casting out demons, all of that. Jesus did that not because he was God, although he was God. 
He did that out of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole sermon we could preach on that, but we don't have time. The reality is this, that when Jesus rose again from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit in power on his church. And then what you see happening is the apostles and the disciples now doing life and ministry in an eerily similar fashion to Jesus. They're casting out demons, they're healing the sick, they're raising the dead, they're preaching with authority, they're living lives that are not marked by their own sinful, disordered desires, but they're living lives marked by the power of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what we mean when we say Spirit-filled. The same Holy Spirit and his activity that was available to Jesus, available to the apostles, available to the early church in the book of Acts, is available for us today. That's what we mean. That's what we mean. So let me just give you two commands today that I want you to think about. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, maybe you're wrestling. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, these are two commands that you have to wrestle with. If you're, not, if you're already a follower of Jesus, these are two commands that are hanging over your life for you to do something about. So here's the first command. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but we'll have it up on the screen. Acts 1 verse 4. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them, his disciples, to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is post the death and resurrection of Jesus. He gathers his disciples together and he gives them this word picture. He's like, you know how John the Baptist baptized people in water? Have you ever seen that? Where if somebody goes under the water, they're completely submerged, and then they come back up out of the water. He said, in a few days from now, I'm going to do that to the church. I'm going to take the church, and I'm going to baptize the church. Not in water, though. This will be the Holy Spirit, and they'll be fully drenched and filled with the Spirit. He goes on. He says this in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's the first command if you're taking notes. It's the command to wait for the Holy Spirit. The command to wait for the Holy Spirit. Think about how bizarre this is for Jesus to say. He's just died on a cross for the sins of the world. He's risen from the dead. Literally, his brainstem turned back on and his heart started pumping blood through his veins. He's alive, he's defeated Satan's sin and death, and you would expect him to gather the disciples together and be like, all right, boys, go get them. Just go share the good news of what I've just done. The world is yours, go for it. But instead, what he does is so different. He gathers them together and he says, I want you to go, but before you go, wait. Wait. Wait for what? Well, wait for the power of of the Holy Spirit. This is really interesting, isn't it? Because if anybody was capable to do ministry, it was probably Peter, the apostle, who spent three years of of life with Jesus walking around, watching him heal the sick and raise the dead, watching him cast out demons, watching him pray, and then having the benefit that you and I don't have where you can walk up to Jesus after he prays and go, hey, could you teach us how to do that real quick? Could you show me how you pray? He could do that. He spent three years literally apprenticing with Jesus, walking around, learning, hearing his sermons, and instead of like having to consult a commentary, like, ooh, what does is, what is Kistemacher think about this? All he had to do is walk up and go, hey, Jesus, like when you said this, what did you mean by that? 
three years, you would expect them to be fully ready to go. And yet these disciples, though they were with Jesus this long, were not ready and they did not have what it took to do life and ministry. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is incredible. What the story goes on to tell us is in Acts 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in power. So Jesus fulfills his promise. He sends the Holy Spirit on the church. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what you see happening is this radical shift in the life of the church where they go from being scared and hiding out to being these unleashed, bold people that are preaching the good news of Jesus, walking up to people who are sick and healing them. They're doing all the same things that we see Jesus doing. And here's my point. If you keep reading the book of Acts, you should be scratching your head thinking, man, if the Holy Spirit never came in power on the church, nothing of what they're doing makes any sense or is even possible. How are they doing this? They're doing this by the power of the Spirit. Let me just give you one example from Acts 16. And this is like, by the way, if you just read Acts, this will be the feeling that you get time and again. It's like, wow, the Holy Spirit is doing quite a bit. So Acts 16, let me just give you an example. Here's, here's what you have to set it up. You have Paul, you have Timothy and Silas, and they have these plans to go do ministry in Asia, but they end up getting rerouted and they go to Philippi. So Acts 16, let me just give you a few things that take place. Um, Paul and Timothy are, quote, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to do ministry in Asia. Isn't that weird? Like they're going to Asia and the Holy Spirit's like, nope, I forbid you to do that. And then they tried to go to Bithynia, but quote, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Strike two, you can't go there either. So then what happens? Paul has a vision by the Holy Spirit telling him to preach the gospel in a place called Macedonia, which is where Philippi is located. So then they lean into this vision and they actually head to Philippi. Then in Philippi, they happen to meet a group of women and they begin to share the good news of Jesus and quote, the spirit opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So the Holy Spirit opens up this woman's heart named Lydia. She pays attention. She ends up responding and becoming a part of the the early church plant in Philippi. Then what happens is for several days, Paul is followed around by this demon-oppressed slave girl, and she has these masters that are basically making money off of her because through the power of the enemy, she's able to like predict the future, tell you things about your life that she shouldn't know otherwise. And she's following Paul around, and she's harassing Paul, and she's, you know, yelling at Paul and oppressing Paul. Paul gets so sick of it that he turns to her, and in the power of the Spirit, he cast out the demons. Her owners get so mad because she's like resumed back into her right mind so that they go and report Paul and Silas to the authorities. Paul and Silas then get thrown into prison for preaching the gospel and doing all of these miracles. And then they're in prison, and they begin to sing and pray very loudly. And everybody can hear them. And then, quote, there's a great earthquake which causes the chains that they're wearing to fall off. The doors just fly open. I mean, it's almost like a movie. It's like crazy stuff begins to happen. And then, instead of leaving, the, the jailer who's nervous that he's, gonna, he's literally going to be executed for allowing all these prisoners to, to be set loose. He's about to fall on his own sword. Uh, Paul and Silas run up to him. They say, hey, don't do that yet. We're all still here. But while we have your time and attention, we just want to tell you about Jesus. They begin to preach the gospel to this guy. The jailer gets saved. He's like, hey, you should come to my house and then tell my family about Jesus. That happens. And then the whole family gets saved. This is one chapter out of the book of Acts. That's what it feels like when you read the book of Acts. Now, you should be scratching your head thinking like, 
We just don't live like that anymore, do we? We don't live like that anymore. It's not that the Spirit has changed his mind or somehow left and doesn't want to work or move in power. We just don't live like this anymore. We don't wait on the Spirit. If this was us in this story in Acts 16, let me just tell you how it happened. Well, we'd have like our perfectly well-thought-out missional strategy our strategic planning that we'd whiteboarded out and really focused on. We would know exactly where we were going to go, when we were going to arrive, what we would do when we were there, and when we would leave. And if we got, you know, rerouted, we would just chalk it up to, like, American Airlines screwed up again. And then, if we had a vision, we would just dismiss it as a weird dream. We ate some weird burrito the night before and had some dream and definitely not a command from the Lord to lean into or think about. And then what we would do is if we finally got there and we start telling the gospel to a group of ladies and Lydia's heart gets open to the gospel, we'd go, man, we are just fantastic evangelizers. Look at how good we are. Like we just told her the gospel and she responded, we must be really, really good at this. And then we'd notice this uh, demon-possessed fortune-telling girl and we'd just assume like, oh, poor thing. She, She struggles with mental health issues. She struggles with mental health issues. I hope that she gets the medicine that she needs. By the way, I love medicine, and I love mental health professionals, and they're great. But that would have been our only sort of category. And then we definitely wouldn't be, you know, singing very loudly and praying if we got arrested for preaching the gospel. We'd be like, how long, oh Lord? You know, and, 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 and please send the U.S. government to intervene and bust us out of this prison. And then if somehow a massive miracle did happen, in which we would not be expecting we would not stick around and notice the jailer is about to commit suicide and think we should probably go tell him, him about Jesus too. My point is this, friends, that everything about the early church only makes sense with the Holy Spirit. That's not quite true of us today. A.W. Tozer said something that's haunted me ever since I heard it. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. So I just want to ask you in your own life, are there ways that you are living where you just don't even need the Holy Spirit anymore? Like if God doesn't show up, it won't really make a big difference in your life because there's nothing really about your life in which you're waiting on him to do. Friends, if I can just say this to you, our world is broken in more ways than you even realize, even if you see it on Facebook and Twitter and the 24-7 news cycle. There are things that exist in our world that no amount of planning, no amount of strategizing, no amount of strategic uh, ideas that we might have will ever make a difference if the Holy Spirit does not show up. We need the Spirit of God. We cannot deal with violence or shootings, or sexual brokenness, or sickness, or bad doctor's reports, or systemic injustice, or poverty, or the political polarization of our world, or the outrage culture, or whatever. Like, we can't deal with any of that in our own strength and power. Do you really believe that? We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think we've kind of just tricked ourselves into thinking that with all of our technology, and all of our brilliance, and all of our power— We can get the job done. We can't. We need to wait on the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I can kind of hear the objection in the room, especially from those of you who are followers of Jesus. If you're sitting here thinking, okay, I need to wait on the Holy Spirit, but here's my problem with that, Andrew. My problem is that we live after Pentecost. I'm a follower of Jesus. I already have the Holy Spirit. Why do I need to wait for something I already have? If that's your objection, I just want to respond by giving you two things. The first is a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers in London around the 1950s. He said this about the need for power from the Holy Spirit. He said, got it all? Well, if you've got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? If you have got it all, why are you so unlike New, New Testament Christians? Got it all? Got it at your conversion? Well, where is it, I ask? I think one of the objections that comes to mind is I already have the Holy Spirit, and we're about to get into this, this reality for more of the Holy Spirit in just a minute, but I just want to encourage you like, to really honestly assess your life and think to yourself, do I really have all of the Holy Spirit that there is to have? And the second response that I would have is to point you to Ephesians chapter 5, our teaching text for today. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but here's the second command that I want you to see. The second command is not just to wait for the Spirit, it's to be filled with the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, th- there are two truths that radically changed my life. Two truths. The first is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Some of you grew up in cultures or denominations in which it was like, all right, well, if you become a Christian, then you're like, you know, secondary, you're, you're in the family, but kind of like on the outskirts as like a, as a cousin or something. And what you have to do is you got to do X, Y, Z so that you can be filled with the Spirit. And once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll probably, you know, pray in tongues or this or that. And that's how you know you really have the Holy Spirit. And until that happens, you don't even have the Holy Spirit. You're like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And I just want to say that if you look at Scripture from John 3 to John 14 to Ephesians 1, 13, 1 Corinthians 12, it very clearly lays out that every follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God that's living inside of them. And that's amazing. That should just already change our lives right there. But here's the second truth that I think is incredible to grab a hold on to. That even though you can have the Holy Spirit, you might not yet be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's actually a difference scripturally and theologically between having the Spirit of God, which every Christian does, and then being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What that means is that there's actually more of the Holy Spirit for you to experience, for you to enjoy, for you to receive. There's more of the Spirit of God's presence. Paul is writing to already Christians in Ephesians chapter 5. People that already have the Holy Spirit. And yet what he says is this present imperative in the Greek. It's, hey, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is like an ongoing, continual reality. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't have time. In the first service, I did this. But there are all these texts in Acts. In Acts 2 and Pentecost, you see the early church uh, baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happens in Acts chapter 4 is that Peter is again then filled in the Holy Spirit in verse 8. 
And then and later on in Acts, in Acts 4, 29 through 31, the early church again, those same people that were filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, pray again and are filled with the Spirit again in a fresh way. And on and on this happens through the book of Acts. People that already were filled with the Holy Spirit, life and ministry happens, they get banged up and beat up, and they need a deeper, fresh encounter with more of God. This is how it works. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because that feels like a vague, confusing phrase. Well, I love what Paul says. He says, don't get drunk with wine, because that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I just want to ask you, like, we have people in our church that drink in moderation. We have people in our church that do not drink alcohol at all. Based on your conscience, that's all great. We all agree that drunkenness is a sin. What happens when you pour a glass of wine and you drink it? Do you feel it? Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll feel it a little bit. And then you take another glass, you pour it full, and you drink that. Then you take another glass, you pour it, you drink that. Maybe one or two more, three more, pour that. What's happening to your body? It's being overtaken, right? It's being overtaken by the effects of alcohol. You are now coming under the influence of alcohol. And your logical mind starts to not function properly. Even your body starts to not function properly. And you're no longer able to uh, kind of do the things that are wise and wholesome. You now start to do things that are really foolish and stupid. That's what happens when you come under the influence of alcohol. Here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that the Holy Spirit wants to come into your life and make you drunk. Have you ever seen Christians that do that? I'm drunk on the Spirit. No, you're just weird, right? And you're freaking everybody out. And you might actually be drunk, like on actual alcohol. That's not what Paul's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, when the Holy Spirit fills you, you begin to come under his influence. You become under his control, under his power. And it leads you into a life of holiness and purity and sanctification and mission and ministry and of having power that is not your own to uh, see people who are healed, uh, see, see people who are sick get healed and see uh, the, the dead raised and miracles happening and, and having new, fresh, uh, a sense of the love of God for you. I mean, it, it does all of these things. Sam Storm says this, he says, to be filled with the Spirit is to come under progressively more intense and intimate influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what it is to be filled with Holy Spirit. Now, I think often we think of the Holy Spirit as like a liquid metaphor, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you might picture like, let's just take my water bottle. Um, If I fill this water bottle with water, it's full. It's done. There's nothing else to do. I mean, it's there, there it is. It's full. And unless I take a drink of it, it's good to go. And I think a lot of us, we kind of picture ourselves that way. It's like, no, it was a water bottle that was half empty and, or half full, depending on your personality. And then, and then that was filled up and it's full. Now it's good. Don't think of water. It's confusing because he, he talks about wine. And so we automatically assume water when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't think of water. Um, in Hebrew, the word for spirit, ruach, is wind, breath, and spirit. One word that means three different things. Wind, breath, spirit. In Greek, the the word for spirit, pneuma, means three things. Wind, breath, and spirit. So don't think of water. Think of wind. Or think of breath. Uh, Imagine a French horn. And I use French horn because no biases, but I do think it's the most beautiful horn instrument out there, right? 
Uh, I'm not a big fan of the other horn instruments as much. French horn, I could listen to it all day. So a French horn, imagine it's just lifeless piece of brass sitting there. Doesn't do anything that's beautiful or powerful. But then someone who knows what they're doing, they pick it up and they breathe into it. And what happens? That French horn is animated and it produces beautiful music. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're like this lifeless piece of brass sitting there until the breath of God breathes in us and it produces something beautiful. Or think of a balloon, right? A a balloon is like a childhood favorite unless it's just a balloon without any air in it. Then it's just a shriveled up piece of rubber. Doesn't create any joy or smiles. You take that shriveled up piece of rubber, you breathe into it, what happens? That balloon fills with air. And then you hand it to a child and they just be, they're happy for whatever weird reason, right? Or think, here's the, here's the best analogy. The best analogy is, is of a sailboat in the middle of the ocean. Imagine the sails aren't hoisted. There's no wind. That sailboat is not going to go anywhere. Do you know what it needs to do what it was created for? It needs the wind to rush in, fill the sails. And then it's just infused with a, a type of energy that it didn't have before. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? We're like the sailboat that's just sitting there, unable to do life and ministry and anything that God has called us to, be it relationships or marriage or singleness or interact with our sexuality or live on mission in the world. You can't do any of that until the breath of God comes in and fills you with the type of power and energy, and life, and vibrancy, and it begins to take over. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it feel like when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? What happens to a person that's filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I love this analogy from Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he says. He says, a man and his little child are walking down the road, and they are walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he is the child of his father, And he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he is happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again, and they go go on walking together. That is it. The child knew before that the father loved him, and he knew that he was his child, But oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I read that and I can't help but think, knowing some of your stories, knowing what you're up against, knowing what's going on in life. And I look around the room, I don't know all of you, but I know a lot of you. My guess is probably most of us, everybody, really needs God to do that for us today. You just need to know that he loves you. You need your head and your heart to get connected. You need the depression to go away. You need the power that sin has been holding over you to be broken. And you might walk in going, I know I'm a son and I know I'm a daughter, but I'm not moved by that reality. Do you know what you need? You need the Father to pick you up pull you close, and pour out his Holy Spirit on you. That's what you need. We almost had a moment there, but you guys didn't go there. Nope. Missed your chance. Sorry. One more quote that I want to give you, just to give you a vision of what this looks like to be filled with the Spirit. This is from a guy, Hal Harris, in the 18th century, a Welsh revival that broke out. 
Um, he, he said this, June 18th, this is a, a journal entry, June 18th, 1735, being in secret prayer, I felt suddenly my heart melting within me like wax before the fire with the love to God my Savior. And I also felt not only love, peace, etc., but longing to be dissolved and to be with Christ. Then was a cry in my inmost soul, which I was totally unacquainted with before, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. I could not help calling God my Father. I knew that I was his child. I knew that he loved me, and I heard, and, and he heard me. My soul being filled and satiated, crying, "'Tis enough, I am satisfied. Give me strength, and I will follow thee through fire and water." I could say I was happy indeed." There is in me a well of water springing up to everlasting life. The love of God was shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Ghost. Friends, how do you know that you need this? If you, let me just give you some signs that you need a fresh touch from God. If you have your head and your heart disconnected today, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. If you know truth theologically, but it hasn't moved you, you need the power of the Holy Spirit today. If you know in your mind that God is supposed to love you, but you feel like he's just putting up with you because he said he would, and now he can't go back on his word, but if he could, he would, you need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. Hey, if sin is having the last say in your life right now, and addictions are ruining you, you need a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit today. If you feel like your marriage is falling apart, you need a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit today. If you feel like your single life is in shambles and falling apart, you need a fresh touch from God. It doesn't matter who you are or what's going on or how overwhelmed you might be. If, if your life is, it feels like you're drowning, what you ultimately need is not more money. It's not more stuff. It's not a better relationship. It's not a new spouse. It's not a new roommate. What you need is God. That's what you need today. And if you want to have more of God, all you have to do is ask the Father for more of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Because he loves to come to weak people who don't have what it takes and to fill them with his presence. So where do we go from here? Let me just give you two things and I'll be done. Number one, this is both an experience that you and I need to have and a habit that we are called to develop. Being filled with the Spirit is an experience. It's powerful. You need to have that experience. Don't be afraid of experiences from God. When God comes in the room, look throughout the whole Bible, people freak out in the right way. It causes an experience. And yet, this is not just an experience. This is a habit that you need to develop. The whole point of this renewal series is that there's ways that you can put yourself underneath the blessing, right? You can put yourself underneath more of God. Uh, Living in sin is putting yourself outside of that, Running from God is putting yourself outside of that. But pursuing God is putting yourself underneath a blessing. Reading scripture is putting yourself underneath a blessing. Some of you have told me recently, uh, since we preached on the word, you've been reading the Bible and your heart is coming alive. That's how it works. Prayer is putting yourself underneath the blessing. Worship, putting yourself underneath the blessing. Gospel, reminding yourself of the truth of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Putting yourself underneath the blessing, on and on. It's like posturing yourself where you're saying, open hands, open heart, open mouth. I just want more of God. Posture yourself for this. You are a sailboat. Hoist the sails 
so that the breath and wind of God can blow into your life. Here's the second thing. Just ask for more of the Holy Spirit. And with this note, I want you to stand with me. I want to invite you to stand. And I want to read something that Jesus said. And if you would, just close your eyes and hear this. Jesus says these words in Luke 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's a horrible dad. Jesus says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him?